you would not have recognized Rosario Butterfield 20 years ago. Currently, Rosaria lives in North Carolina. She is a wife to a pastor, has several kids, dogs, and is a prolific Christian author. 20 years ago, Rosaria was a tenured English professor at Syracuse University. She was a lesbian who enjoyed life with her partner in their house overlooking a lake. She was a leader and advisor for feminist and LGBT groups on her campus. She contributed to early and foundational policies for same-sex marriage. What explains such a radical change from 20 years ago until now? Well, in her own words, she summarizes it that God in his wisdom and mercy used her commitment to her identity as a lesbian to reveal to her a new identity available to her in Christ. So the story of that, going into a little bit more detail, and upon achieving tenure at Syracuse, Rosaria set on a new academic project, and one that was especially personal. She wanted to figure out, she wanted to explain why Christians, in particular groups on the religious right, supposedly hated people like her. So she spent a couple years researching and finally, finally published her work. And on that book received more notoriety than any of her previous works. And it also came with unique feedback. Some good feedback, some bad feedback. In one letter she received, she described it as the nicest criticism that she ever gotten. This letter was from a pastor in her hometown who invited her to study the Bible with him and his wife. And she said, okay. As an English professor, she wanted to study the Bible on its own terms. So Rosaria, Pastor Ken, and his wife met weekly for nearly two years. They constantly opened the door to their home and she witnessed many others come in and out. And over those two years, they discussed the Bible, they discussed sexuality, they discussed everything in between. Now this new habit of hers really concerned many of her lesbian and gay friend scholars. She described them as a loving community, but they were concerned about this. So for a time, she stopped her research and was ready to throw the Bible in the trash. But she kept going. Because she was captivated by something. And her, Pastor Ken, and his wife were all friends. So she considered what it would mean for her to become a Christian. She was scared of what she would have to leave behind. She loved the LGBT community. She described them as her family. Uh, their homes constantly open. They went on vacations together. They had birthday parties. There was constant support, especially during the AIDS crisis. And she saw this level of community only sporadically in the Christian church. She would lose that. She would lose relationships. She would lose leadership and advisory boards. She would, she would look insane to her friends. 
And it would appear to them that she was betraying them. She would leave behind things that she treasured because she found a greater treasure. She found the treasure of Christ, his redemption and new life in him. Now, not every person's story is like Rosaria's. Not all lifestyles of sin are met with that kind and gentle response. Well, the point of her story that I want to emphasize is not what repentance for her looked like and how she now viewed her identity in Christ as compared to her sexuality, although that's a conversation worth having. Now, the point of her story I want to emphasize is how God used the fullness of the gospel displayed in the local church to save Rosaria. What I mean is is this. Rosaria was met with more than a simple on-the-street gospel presentation. And friends, that is not to say that that's not bad in and of itself. And God uses that to rescue many people. In fact, gospel words are necessary. But Rosaria didn't just hear gospel words. She saw gospel life. She witnessed the gospel lived out among those saved by it. That's what drew her in. And that's what I want to present to you today. Life together as a church begins with believing in the truth of the gospel, of God's love for us, of his revelation of himself and his word, of Christ crucified and resurrected on our behalf. But friends, it's when we truly believe that, when we truly grasp it and understand it, and it takes root, oh, that changes everything about how we live. That's the basic story of every Christian life. You know, God intends his beauty to be made known, his beauty to shine in a group of those who have that same redemption story living together. So we've talked about many different components of a local church and how the Bible presents a local church. But on the ground, street level, what does life together as a local church look like? Well, we should always be trying to answer that question. In fact, I won't answer all of it today. But for today, we'll say this. This is the main point of our time. Members of a local church glorify and reflect God in their holy, deep, and wide love for one another. So going forward in our time together, we want to see what unites and fuels the kind of otherworldly community God intends for his church. In other words, we want to see how, must, how we must begin with the truth. And then we'll consider what it looks like for a church to love as God loves. And by no means will we be exhaustive in saying how we are to love one another. And we'll close by asking what it looks like when truth and love come together. What are its byproducts? So we start with the truth. We start with believing together. And one of the favorite word pictures of the Bible is that of a tree. The biblical authors use 
things like seeds and trees and fruits to describe different aspects of the gospel, to describe what a Christian is, to describe the Christian life. It's just all over trees. But if you look at any tree, you look at any plant or bush, each one of them had a starting point. I was thinking about it this week. Is if you've ever looked out at the back of the campus here and the field, the trees there are magnificent. They're huge. I thought each one of those trees had a starting point. Each one of those trees came from a little seed. So what is that for us? When we talk about life together as a local church, we have to begin by asking, well, how do we get life in the first place? Well, if we don't begin with the source of life, then how can we have life at all? Well, the seed of our lives as Christians and of our life as a local church is none other than the gospel of Jesus Christ given to us, not on our own initiative, but because of God's initiative. We see this all over the Bible, but I want to trace two different examples for us, and we'll return to them throughout our time. One from the book of Acts, one from the book of Ephesians, how the seed and source of life for us is the gospel. So turn to Acts chapter 2. You'll find that on page 911. Acts chapter 2, if you're looking at uh, this Bible, which you'll find in the pew rack in front of you, uh, you'll find that on page 911. In this chapter, uh, we're specifically going to look at verses 42 to 47. This chapter describes the church in the city of Jerusalem. So the, we're going to start in verse 42, and I want us to see First, the final product of the tree. We're not going to notice the seed yet. We're going to notice the final product. I want us to see the tree in full bloom and then work backwards and notice where it all came from. What, it's, what is its source? So Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here's the tree, full bloom. And what do we see? It's a picture of new, radical, and loving life together. These people are zealous to learn. They're zealous to live out what they learned, to live generously, to bring more people in. But how did that tree begin? Where did it all start? Well, it's easy. You just read earlier in chapter 2. It begins with God's initiative to give life through his word of the gospel. 
So before this final part of Acts chapter 2 came a sermon from Peter who preached Christ crucified and raised, bringing victory over death and forgiveness of sin. Preaching that good news of the gospel. And so the final bloom of their life together as a church got its start with new life in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in our place and hearts made new by his spirit. That's the seed and source of life. And friends, we see the same thing in other places. Go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 2, page 976. Again, we want to see first the final bloom. Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll pick up in verses 15 to 18. The final bloom of life together in a local church. Beginning in verse 15. That he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What's the point here? The point here is that before the gospel, there was division between Jew and Gentile. But now there is unity. Now those who are strangers are a part of the same family. And what's the source? The only way we have this final blossom tree of unity between these two different kinds of people is if we begin with the seed of the gospel. Look at verse 16. The source is the cross of Christ. And it's through that sinners are forgiven and given equal status and an equal standing before God. What else could do this? What else? What else could do this for two peoples with such a different history, ethnicity, religion, and culture? Unity and the source is the life-giving power of the gospel. Friends, this is the pattern of each Christian, and it's the pattern of life in the church. Its beginning and source is God himself who acts in us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. See this not just here. Look earlier in Ephesians chapter 2. The only way those who are described in verse 1 as being dead in trespasses and sin, the only way those receive life is if God himself gives life. And that's what he has done in his son, Jesus Christ. That's stated in verse 5. The only way we are saved is not because of our own works, verses 8 and 9 say, but because of what God has done in Christ. It's because of his grace. So you've got to start with the right source, or else you won't have that final product. So beginning with the right seed or source is the only way to have life. 
seems obvious, doesn't it? But it's easy to give the appearance of life that stems ultimately from a source besides the God-given gospel. So in very subtle ways, Christians can foster community and unity by centering on something besides the gospel, or at least in some, something in addition to the gospel. So for example, one author uh, points, gives these examples. Christians may build community by centering on similar life experience. Singles groups, newlyweds, young professionals. Christians may try to build community by centering on similar identity. Cowboy churches, motorcycle churches, arts churches. All very may well be gospel-believing, but something other than the gospel is at the core of their identity. Christians may try to build community around a similar cause, feeding the hungry, helping schools. What's the core? Is it that or is it the gospel? May try to build community around similar needs, around similar social positions, and so forth. What does this matter? What, what is at stake here? It's not that natural bonds like these are bad, like similar life positions, similar identities. It's not that those are bad in themselves. But we want something deeper. We want a community that only the gospel makes possible. Something that unmistakably glorifies God because it's remarkably different from the world. So when a church's deepest bonds are found in the gospel and not natural affinities, that's when it's most compelling. That's when Ephesians 3 verse 10 is true. That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So bring people who have nothing in common, who are actually enemies, and tell them to live together, and things should go badly, right? But in the church, they don't, or they shouldn't, because they have the most important thing in common. That's the bond of the gospel. And because of that, they live together in love and unity. And now that's remarkable. That's God's wisdom made known. That's what God can do when he is the source of new life for an entire group of people. There's a good story that uh, displays this. It was uh, from a man in his late 50s who attended a growing church in Manhattan. And he was stunned by the amount of young people there, young people who appeared to be successful professionals as well. He said, it has always been a settled belief of mine that religion is dying out, it, at least among young, educated, and certainly successful people. He said, oh, I can understand young adults being attracted to the Christian rock concert type things. But my experience here puts something of a hole in that assumption. Because there's something more compelling when the gospel is what unites, 
And the gospel is the deepest bond. That's the God-glorifying nature of unity in the local church produced only by the power of the gospel. So we return to that image of a tree. We began with a view of its end point, of its full-grown and healthy blossom, and then we worked backwards. A tree could not have gotten to that point unless it had started off with the right seed. And we saw the source of a church's life is God himself who saves and gives new life through the gospel. And it is only in him and because of him that we grow into what he intends us to be. But now we ask, what does he intend us to be? What does that full tree look like? Well, we already caught a glimpse in the, uh, of the endpoints in Acts chapter 2 and Ephesians of that radical, loving community created by the gospel. But we can double-click and zoom in a little bit further on how the Bible tells, out to, tells us to live out that community among us. Two dimensions of love that Christians have for one another in the local church. We love in depth and we love in breadth. If you can't remember, just remember the song. Deep and wide, deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide. I like that song. I don't know if, I guess you didn't. Um, Now we look first at love in depth. Uh, So we'll table uh, Ephesians and Acts for a moment. In the meantime, turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, you'll find it on page 1023. And here we find the most basic implication of God's love for us. We love one another. That's what I call a Geico application. It's so easy, even a caveman can understand it. (laughs) But it will take more than 15 minutes to save you 15% or more on car insurance. This is a new way of living, and we this is a new lifestyle for us. Love for one another. So 1 John chapter 4, because God's love, what do we do? Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Notice, if God so loved us, how did God so love us? Well, look back, verses 9 and 10, is that he sent his son to be the payment for our sin. And it's not that we earned that love. He chose to give it while we were sinners against him. So how are we to love one another? Like God has loved us in the gospel. That's the pattern. A deep, sacrificial, self-giving, gracious love. So the first step, if you want to know how to love your brothers and sisters in the local church, where should you look? Look to the cross. What if Christians don't love in this way? We'll pick up later in uh, 1 John 4 and verse 19. It says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him Whoever loves God must also love his brother. 
One commentator on these verses says this, that for John, who's writing this, love between believers isn't a sign of maturity. It's a sign of saving faith. So if people's involvement in a church is motivated entirely out of what's in it for me, where, do the, where does that fit in the portrait 1 John offers? The portrait 1 John offers is one who's supposed to love in a selfless, others-first, sacrificial kind of way. Yet it's often the case that churches reinforce shallow, low-commitment love for Christians because that's how they attract people. They keep things as low commitment as possible and want people to do only things that they are comfortable with doing and that they can get something out of. Now, it's not to say that we can't grow in our depth. Absolutely. But when you attract people as consumers with the mentality of what's in it for me, you'll wind up with a whole group of people who have that attitude of what's in it for me. Instead of a whole group of people wanting to give themselves for others. Now friends, what is more powerful and what is more compelling? Now a shallow, low commitment love is not what the Bible presents of what should come natural for a Christian. The natural outcome of one saved by God's love and transformed, made new by the Spirit is a deep and committed love for fellow Christians. Fellow Christians who are often different from them. Now, yes, we can grow in this. Paul prays for the Thessalonians that the Lord would increase their love for one another. We can increase in this. But this isn't an optional addition to what a Christian is. This kind of love is not an ornament on the tree of the church. It's a part of the tree itself. So, a deep love for one another. It's who Christians are. What does that look like? How do we love one another with a deep and committed kind of love? We can find a lot of examples how Christians are to do this. One comes from Romans chapter 12. You can turn there if you like. It's on page 948. Romans chapter 12, verses 13 to 16, gives a good summary of this deep love Christians are called to have for one another. It says this. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. If you're looking for plans this afternoon, meditate on these verses. Read them a few times and seek to pray to God how you can live this out among a group of people. Because the picture here is a deep and sacrificial love that rejoices, does not envy. The picture here is a love that weeps, not a love that remains distant and cold. How do we love one another in this deep kind of love? Well, Hebrews 10, verse 25, 
It says we do that in a deep way when we assemble regularly. Believe it or not. Believe it or not, your physical presence makes a difference. It's the starting point for our love for one another. Um, and it's really hard to love one another when you never see them. Friends, your physical presence makes a difference. I'm just, I'll say this right now. Every time I see Betty Fitch, my heart glows. I love just seeing her. She gives joy to me. Your physical presence makes a difference. How do we love one another in this deep kind of way? Well, we do it by encouraging one another. Encouraging means to strengthen each other's faith. So we're gentle to those who are hurting or doubting. We guard others from sin. We fight for faith together. Friends, if the Christian life is a war, it's an image that the Bible often uses, then we can't fight as individuals. We need one another. So we do that. We encourage. That's loving in a deep way. We guard one another. That's another way the Bible calls us to love in a deep way. Protect one another from sin out of love for that person. Looking for another verse to read this afternoon? Read verses, read verse Hebrews 3, 12 to 13. Deep love. In the local church, it's all over the Bible. In the light of the importance of this command, in the many ways we live it out, we find it useful to summarize these one another commands in a church covenant. A church covenant reminds us that we are called to love one another in a deep and committed way. It's a promise we are making to those here, and those here are making to us. So, as a side note, side note on this deep and committed kind of love. I'm going to make another plug for church membership. This is not a hobby horse, I promise. This is a legitimate implication of, of this deep and committed love. The Bible assumes this kind of love comes in a formalized commitment. That's expressed in church membership. Not only does the Bible assume that churches knew who was inside and outside of them, we see this in church discipline passages and passages where church leaders knew for whom they were accountable. But friends, formal commitment itself and doing that in membership, that proves your deep and committed love and it holds it accountable. We can think of it like this. Saying you'll love those in the church the way you're supposed to, the way we are called to, in a deep and committed fashion, saying you'll do that, but refusing to formally commit to doing that in membership is like saying to your significant other, I don't need a piece of paper that says we're married to love you. That's misunderstanding that the marriage vow is more than a vow. It's also a test. Pastor Tim Keller says this, when one person says to another, I love you, but let's not ruin it by getting married. That person really means, I don't love you enough 
to close off all my options. I don't love you enough to give myself to you that thoroughly. It's saying my love for you hasn't reached the marriage level yet. Now, the analogy between membership and marriage breaks down at some point. But like with marriage, it's not that you should settle. No. But if you want to find a perfect person, you're never going to get married. So with becoming a member of a local church, if you're a Christian, you should find a faithful church to join. But if you want to find a perfect church, you're never going to become a member of a church. Instead, become a member of a church. See their faithfulness, recognize their weaknesses, and help the church get stronger. Because the church could use your help. And believe it or not, you may be able to use their help as well for you to get stronger. So commit to love a local church with all its faults. That's the kind of gracious and deep love with which God loves us. So you want to prove that your love for your brothers and sisters is deep? Well, listen to Beyonce. Put a ring on it. (laughs) Reach the membership level. I'm telling you, it it seems like a, a small thing, but formalized commitment Like with marriage, it fuels, it fuels love. It tests it. It keeps it accountable. But our love isn't only deep. It's also wide. God's glory was made known among the Christians in the church at Ephesus, not just because they loved one another in a deep way, but because they used to be really far apart, the people in that church completely separated, and now they're brought together so that depth and breadth go hand in hand. So if you don't have depth and you're trying to build community, how do you do that? How do you build a community where everyone is a consumer, where everyone says, I only do what I, when I get something out of it? How do you build community with that? Well, you have to rely on something, other besi- something else besides the gospel. You have to offer things that people do only because they get something out of it. Community then becomes a bunch of independent pockets of people that look just like one another. That's not the breadth that God intends for his church. The broad love that glorifies God is love for those who aren't like you, those who you would say are weird. That's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He asks, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Friends, natural bonds are good. They're not compelling. Yes, like will be attracted to like, And those relationships aren't bad. But local churches should aspire to have the kind of community where similarity isn't necessary because we are bonded by something deeper. And that's the gospel. This means we love broadly. 
We love beyond the boundaries respected by society. We love beyond ethnic boundaries. We love beyond the boundaries of age. We love beyond the boundaries of income, beyond the boundaries of politics. Yes, we can speak on moral issues, but that doesn't always translate clearly into public policies, and we are not in Nazi Germany. So we love beyond public politics. We love beyond cultural background. Those who grew up in the church, those who didn't, those are, who are from rural, suburban, and even other countries. We love beyond social ability. We love the socially awkward, and we love the social butterflies. Beyond natural boundaries. This is who we are. That's what Ephesians says. It says we are made strangers. We are, we are made one even though we were strangers, that the dividing wall is torn down. It's who we are, and now we're called to live like it. So loving in breadth means sacrificing our interests for our brothers and sisters for their sake. Want to give an example of this? How about music? Instead of thinking... What kind of music will help me worship God the best? You should ask this. What kind of music will help the most people worship God the best? Will help the entire church worship God the best? It's an other's mindset. And I'm persuaded that this means music should be as simple as possible so it can be accessible to as many types of people as possible. Loving in breadth has an other's mindset. To love those different from you, you have to be willing to give up what would keep you far from them. Sometimes that's giving up preferences. Other times, that's giving up comfort and convenience. Friends, it would be comfortable and convenient for you never to sit by or talk to someone who is socially awkward or older than you. That would be comfortable and convenient. But what will you do for the sake of loving that person? And what's more compelling? A bunch of people who are friends because they look exactly alike or a bunch of people who are friends but are totally different and they are united by something far deeper? Friends, this is, this is so worth it. So Christians are called to love those different from them because they have a more important reality in common. So this is the tree. This is the tree of a local church. Its life is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, forgiven, made new, brought into the same family, and its life is displayed, full bloom, in the deep and broad love that their people have for one another. That's a healthy church. So when a church is rooted in the truth and displays the fruit of love, there are many other things that can reveal good health. To close, briefly, highlight two of them. Healthy churches are like healthy trees. That healthy trees grow. And healthy trees produce more trees. So when truth and love mix, that means growth. 
What do we grow into? What do we mean by that? Let me read 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18 again. You read it earlier. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In other words, growth means looking more and more like Christ. Continually transforming into his image. And we don't just do that as individuals. We do that together as a church. And where does that growth come from? Who is it that gives the increase? It's from God. It comes only from God. And speaking in his previous letter, Paul told the Corinthians that he sowed the seed of the gospel, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Writing to the Thessalonians, Paul thanks God for doing what? For growing their faith. God is the one who gives the growth. And how does he do it? Like he's always done it. He's do, he does it through his word. That's the pattern throughout the Bible. God speaks and God gives life. God grows churches through the preaching of his word, preaching that explains and applies the Bible. And we want to preach in a way that equips everyone to apply it to themselves and to take it to others. Others here in this church and those even outside the church so that the sermon is more than a snowball that I throw at each one of you. But that snowball can become an avalanche. God grows us to be more like Christ through prayer. Friends, Jesus has won us access to the throne of grace. So we draw near. If we know that this is how God will grow us, then would you love your fellow church members and your church as a whole by praying for them? By praying for specific individuals and praying for the church as a whole. Pray for our unity, that we would love one another well. Pray for faithfulness. Pray for your elders. Pray for a hunger for the word. Pray for deep relationships. Pray that we would be better at praying. Pray for financial provision. Pray for healing. Pray for holiness. We could keep going. And if we're honest, when we look at our lives, the risk is not that we are praying too much. The risk is that we aren't praying enough. God gives the growth. And he does it through our love for one another. That's why all these one another commands are here throughout the Bible. And this doesn't have to be complicated. Think of the opportunity you have at each gathering of this church. You could just start there. Just start at that level. How will you take advantage of it? How will you take advantage of Sunday? How will you love deeply? Will you take initiative and ask good questions? Ask the questions on the back of the bulletin. Ask about people's lives. Ask about the sermon. Will you come early? Will you stay late? How will you love broadly, not just deeply, but broadly? Will you talk to different people? Will you sit in different places? 
Will you sit near one another? Will you love your family in this way? That's just Sunday. Friends, it would be easy not to do this. It really would. But think of what God would do if we did it. God gives growth. And God giving growth through all these ways amounts to us looking more and more like his son. It amounts to us denying ourselves and denying sin more and more and building in ourselves a desire for the Lord. Last thing, I promise. God delights in his own glory. He delights in his holiness. And we reflect him by seeking growth in holiness. But you know, God also looks outward. So when truth and love mix, they make a church look outward. God himself looks to bless his people and draw others to be a part of his church. And we reflect him, not just by looking inward, but by looking outward. Looking to others in the church to see how we can love them and how we can help them, how we can build them up. We look outward to our neighbors as ambassadors of Christ with an amazing message to carry. Freedom, reconciliation, new life, new hope, and it's through faith, not earned. And we can bring others in to be compelled by this kind of community. Outward focus. And we look outward to other churches. Hope for new ones to be established and pray that they would be established in health, in holiness, in truth, in love for one another. We look outward to nations that don't have access to the gospel by praying, providing support, even sending those there. So a healthy church is one whose roots are in the gospel, who blooms into love for one another, that grows in holiness and faces outward. When I played baseball, whenever I got into a hitting slump, I would try to solve the problem in a variety of ways. So maybe it was a different mental approach. It was lacking confidence. Maybe it was a, a timing thing. You know, I had trouble with the curve. Maybe it was equipment. You know, I could just try a new bat or new batting gloves, and that'll solve it. You know, most of the time, it was something wrong in my fundamentals. The basic components of a swing. From time to time, actually all the time, we need to remind ourselves as a church of the fundamentals, basic components. And the only way we live out those fundamentals is if we keep our eye on the ball, is if we keep our eye not on ourselves, not on our own glory, but keeping our eye on Christ. He is the center of our life together. Let's pray. Lord, all glory be to you in you alone. Lord, we would not be who we are now if it wasn't for you. Without you, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Without you, we don't have life. 
Without you, we don't grow. Without you, we don't love one another. Without you, we are overly focused on ourselves. God, what we are saying is that we need you for all this. So God, give us strength and help us. We pray not for our own sake, but so that your glory and beauty might shine in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.